This is a presentation of the Pitch Podcast Network. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Streetwise Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Wilbur. This is the podcast extension of The Pitch from Kansas City. I am your host, and I am also the editor-in-chief of The Pitch. How is everybody doing out there? Everybody having a nice time? Me, I am relaxing after catching the uh, critic screening of the new James Bond film, uh, which it is very fun to see the end of Daniel Craig's run as James Bond. Really enjoyed this version of James Bond the whole time uh, for the last, I guess, uh, yeah, decade and a half. Um, I really liked the version of James Bond where he wasn't particularly talented or suave. He mostly could just keep taking a hit, just like a like if a footballer, uh, if a Man City fan got called in. Uh, yeah, he's Roy Kent. Roy Kent as James Bond. Uh, it was a great run. Really enjoyed that. What I like, what I liked most about it was that um, for more than two years now, <laughs> I've been watching the trailer for it, uh, and there have been five different release dates set for it to enter theaters. Um, and it finally looks to be coming out. Uh, it's one of those moments that you're just like, oh this is how long life has been on pause and it is coming unpaused and I don't know, we're not out of anything, but like, uh, at least we're back on track. It, it, it seemed like one of those things that was just never actually going to happen. Like some, some prank every time they set a date, like I, I would just laugh and be like, no, that won't be the date either. And here we are. It's a, it's a movie that's fine. It exists, <laughs> But it will always be very important to me because it is a movie that I thought I was going to see for more than two years. It has been in my calendar and moved so many different times. And now I have seen it and nothing could live up to the expectations of that. So it's just fine. Everything's fine about that. Anyway, we have a great episode of the show today. Uh, we have Nick's Music Corner, as per always. I'm going to be talking to the director of a documentary later. But first up, our friend Jason from Stolen Dress Entertainment is reading uh, our writer Lily's uh, story about a Wikipedian in residence that now works at the Kansas City Library. Wisdom of the Cloud. KCPL's new Wikipedian in residence gives us the tools to edit our own histories. By Lily Wolfemeyer. In June 2021, the Kansas City Public Library announced a new staff position that reimagines the traditional librarian role with a digital twist, the Wikipedian in residence. Miranda Pratt, who graduated from Kansas City Art Institute in 2019, is filling the post for the inaugural year-long tenure. Wikipedia is a crowdsourced and open-source digital encyclopedia, meaning anyone with access to a computer and extra time on their hands can contribute an article or make edits to its content. Those who do volunteer their time to work on the back end are known as Wikipedians. There's been a growth in paid Wikipedia in residence, or WIR, positions at private institutions such as Harvard University, the National Archives and Records Administration, and the Smithsonian Institution Archives over the last 10 years. In 2018, New Zealand even received a grant to host a national Wikipedian at large position. But Pratt will be the first WIR to hold a paid position at a public library in the United States. 
People have done Wikipedia work at public libraries, says Pratt, but it's usually libraries. Other public institutions are underfunded, and it's often just one person doing a bunch of work and there's not really a specific allotment of the position. Pratt's job is multifaceted and, in many ways, community-facing. One of their primary responsibilities will be to update and edit Wikipedia and its metadata based on resources from the library. A majority of my personal edits will be made utilizing the materials from the Missouri Valley Room, a physical archive located at the central branch of KCPL. Since their collections are so focused on local history, it makes a lot of sense for me to pull and cite resources as source material, says Pratt. Additionally, they'll be pulling research from some of the library's digital databases, including Missouri Valley Special Collections, the Pendergast Years, and Civil War on the Western Border. They're also working towards linking the Hispanic Oral History Project housed in the Missouri Valley database on Wikipedia so it gains more traffic. For my personal work, I'll be looking at these resources with an eye on equity, says Pratt, who is taking an approach of telling history from the bottom up. This means they will focus on the stories of citizens, the working class, and marginalized folks as they're editing. They will also lead free workshops teaching folks how to edit Wikipedia, and host events to encourage the growth of the local Kansas City Wikipedia community. As the library stated when they announced the position, the WIR highlights the role of the collaborative online encyclopedia in shaping public understanding of our community's history. Going to art school, the archive is this whole concept, right? Pratt says. You use the before the archive, and it's so inaccessible. When I was in school, I found myself making work about the archive. And then I realized it didn't make any sense, like I could just work in an archive. While studying fiber and creative writing, they began a work-study job at the Janus Library at KCAI and did an internship at the Spencer Art Reference Library at the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art. The internship was centered around writing one Wikipedia article, an intensive process that took Pratt three months. When they graduated, they worked across a number of industries, including as a lunch person, a barista, and a full-time employee in the Nelson's library, hosting Wikipedia-related events. People can do really poetic things with archives, and they are doing really poetic things and really powerful things about their own histories, says Pratt. And I think that knowing how to use Wikipedia is just one tool, and this can help people find specific information. For those of us who grew up with Wikipedia at our fingertips in school, we know most teachers are adamant that it isn't a reliable source for research. A former president of the American Library Association, Michael Gorman, argued that academics using Wikipedia were the intellectual equivalent of a dietitian who recommends a steady diet of Big Macs with everything. But there's a growing movement of Wikipedians worldwide, such as Pratt, who would disagree with this stigmatization of free knowledge. I don't think you're supposed to cite an encyclopedia. It's just supposed to give you an overview of a topic so you can learn how to research deeper. I don't think it's inherently bad to start out at Wikipedia because it has so many sources and so many people are editing these articles, especially articles about really notable topics. Often you can find more reliable information than in other places. Wikipedia is currently the fifth most visited site on the entire internet, and all of its information lives outside of a paywall. Through the Google Knowledge Graph project, Google uses information from Wikipedia to display knowledge panels for general search results. Mega media sites like Facebook and YouTube use this site to fact-check their own content. In short, Wikipedia isn't going away anytime soon. Knowing how to navigate, and even edit and improve, the encyclopedia is crucial to operating in our modern information age and combating the tides of fake news. There's this thing called lateral reading, which I think especially people in younger generations do, says Pratt. You have five tabs open, and you're fact-checking each tab against the other. But a lot of people will only read one tab, and you could be on a site that's a conspiracy theory. When you get immersed in this one site without checking it against five other ones, then you could believe the site. Wikipedia helps really quickly check for stuff like that. 
On July 30th, Pratt hosted their first free public workshop through the library entitled Wikipedia 101. They began with an access check, inviting Zoom participants to evaluate their wellness that day and whether they felt more comfortable turning off their cameras, muting themselves, and participating over chat or exiting the call early. Throughout the workshop, Pratt provided a brief Wikipedia overview. Using the article on cats as an example, they walked us through the anatomy of a typical page and dove into the nitty-gritty of editing principles and wiki ethics. We learned an active vocabulary for discussing Wikipedia culture, biases that arise on the site, movements to improve its content, and even got our first glimpse into how we can become contributors. I'm hoping to grow a community of people who regularly attend events that are less intimidated by the internet because Wikipedia culture can be very toxic, says Pratt. It's like any forum that's open, where anybody can comment anything. But I want to have enough people who know what they're doing and how to navigate the platform that they can feel comfortable writing their own histories. In a world where academic knowledge becomes paid content on sites such as JSTOR or is hidden in physical archives only accessible to a local community, Pratt's position at a public institution is groundbreaking. It is a position rooted, ultimately, in information activism. It is a position to address inequities and barriers to access of that forbidding archive. The people that know how to use libraries are the people that work in libraries, because you have to know how to research in all of your research methods, even keyword searches, says Pratt. There's a generational gap and an income gap, and all sorts of intersectional gaps in this kind of research knowledge. During their Wikipedia 101 webinar, Pratt quoted Merrilee Prophet, author of Leveraging Wikipedia, Connecting Communities of Knowledge, on the significance of Wikipedia to the public library. Wikipedia has the visibility on the open web that libraries lack, Prophet writes. Libraries, whether public or academic, hold collections that can bring depth to Wikipedia articles and can provide high-quality support materials in order to help build better articles. Unfortunately, Wikipedia isn't an information access utopia either. Unless you're lucky enough to find and land a position like Pratt's, Wikipedians work on a strictly volunteer basis. Paid editing is a controversial topic within the Wikipedian community, but without it, only those who can afford to take the time to learn the back end and make edits are able to do so. You have to be a certain class, and a certain race, certain sexes, certain gender identities, in order to have the time to edit Wikipedia, says Pratt. In 2010, United Nations University Merit conducted a survey to study the demographics and motivations of Wikipedia editors and readers. They found that, among respondents, only 12.64% of contributors were female. Contributors who identified as neither male nor female numbered at 0.63% of surveyed participants. According to a statement from KCPL, fewer than 20% of Wikipedia's biographies feature women, and fewer still highlight women of color or those in the LGBTQIA community. As Pratt explains, Wikipedia hasn't even taken data on a lot of queer people or black and brown people. They don't take data on any of those intersections. Then the information that you're reading is super skewed because people aren't writing their own histories. Pratt will be addressing this issue on a local level through their tenure as KCPL's WIR. I'll be building the Kansas City Wikipedia community beyond that which already exists, which is pretty small and not very diverse on many different factors of intersectionality. I think I found a lot of Wikipedians that are really into writing about architecture, but I found fewer people that are into writing about people that are currently active. Part of this community building includes workshops like Wikipedia 101, where Pratt also seeks to educate us on the flaws that exist within Wikipedia's system. Due to a lack of diversity in contributors, the information on Wikipedia is often skewed and reveals contributor biases. This issue plays out in articles that hit close to home. The Wikipedia page on J.C. Nichols, the real estate mogul who developed large swaths of Kansas City in the early to mid-1900s, 
never directly states that he participated in segregationist practices of redlining. Instead, the article refers to them as racist deed restrictions and restrictive covenants. Such nuances, while subtle, fail to connect Nichols to a larger national pattern of redlining. At the same time, Casey Black history is poorly documented, if at all, on Wikipedia, which is unfortunately in line with global trends. I recently took stats on the African American Biography section of the Missouri Valley Special Collections database and found that out of the 63 biographies in the portal, only 61% have Wikipedia articles. Out of those articles, 92% could use significant improvement on Wikipedia. Pratt will be inputting metadata, such as basic biographical facts, on each person in Wikidata, which functions as a repository for Wikipedia to pull information from. Google Search pulls this data for their info boxes, Pratt explains, making them easier to find online and laying the groundwork for other folks to write their Wikipedia articles. Pratt is also looking to fill gender gaps in local history on Wikipedia. I did a data assessment on the UMKC Star Women's Hall of Fame, which is still very cisgender and straight, etc., and out of the 25 individuals in the data set, only 28% have Wikipedia articles. 100% of the existing articles can use substantial improvement. According to Pratt, Wikipedians agree that the online encyclopedia will live for quite a while because it is so open. So, should we feel absolutely hopeless about the inherent flaws in the system? I think we have an opportunity to change the biases, says Pratt. Wikipedia is being used by all sorts of organizations to close information gaps and increase diversity online, both in editors and content. We have to focus on increasing our representation and diversity online and correcting these things that are inherently biased and citing them with sources. And I think anybody can do that. Anybody, including us. I think that is a really tangible way for Kansas Cityans to get involved, says Pratt. Learn how to edit Wikipedia and then write what they believe is important. In addition to future installments of their Wikipedia webinar series, Pratt will be organizing edit-a-thons, virtual or in-person events where folks convene to edit Wikipedia articles on a predetermined topic. Edit-a-thons are open to experienced contributors, as well as those just starting out. KCPL hosted their first edit-a-thon in a series of partnerships with the Black Archives of Mid-America August 28th on the history of the Women's Basketball Association. Pratt hopes to host an edit-a-thon focused on queer history in the future as well. They envision these events as tools for empowering communities to write their own histories on Wikipedia. As a white person working this position, it feels more ethical to me to engage with community partners who have lived experience in areas such as Black KC history to collaborate on edit-a-thons where they curate the content and I help with tech training and edits. Pratt adds, I'd also like to create a series of Wikipedia zines because I like zines. They're a fun, accessible way to share information. And of course, in the spirit of the public librarian, they make an open invitation. If anyone is interested in hosting Wikipedia events but would like a helping hand, reach out to them. They're also available for one-on-one -on -one workshops, questions, or for help setting up Wikipedia accounts. And it's all free because it's through the library, which is really rad, Pratt points out. As more and more library science schools across the nation are turning their focus to data and technology under the umbrella of the iSchool, one can only hope that positions like Pratt's become more widely available at public libraries. The WIR role at KCPL provides an excellent, scalable model. That's the ideal. Out of this job, more jobs will come. People besides myself can also do it. It's really cool to have a job where you can engage the public on this sort of platform, Pratt says. I do truly think it will open up more job opportunities for folks at other public libraries in the future. I want more folks to get paid to improve the internet. On September 23rd, KCPL will host an edit-a-thon on Missouri artists in collaboration with the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art, the St. Louis Public Library, and the Kansas City Art Institute. You can reach out to Pratt with any questions about Wikipedia, 
at mirandapratt at kclibrary.org. And now it's time for Nick's Music Corner. Hello, I'm Nick Spasic, music editor for The Pitch, here with this week's local music recommendation. We premiered Elevator Division's most recent single, Torn Apart, a few weeks ago in conjunction with our feature story, which ran in the most recent print edition. Not for nothing does the typeface on the single's artwork nod to Joy Division, as it's a dark, synthy, post-punk jam which harkens back to the earliest days of the band while still managing to shimmer with melody. As Elevator Division's Chris Stewart explained when we spoke, the band was limited at one point by what they could do in the garage, and as they were once down to a three-piece, synths just weren't possible as they grew and changed. Thanks to the fact that the band now rocks as a quintet, that means this fantastic return to form after two decades away will get to be jammed live when the band plays The Record Bar this Friday, October 1st, with opener's Nameless Number Headman. Additionally, there will be a limited number of vinyl singles available of this track and the previous release, Words and Pictures, available at that show. Here's Torn Apart.
Hello, this is Nick Spasic, music editor for The Pitch, here with this week's local music recommendation. Sometimes you're having a weird week, and the first thing which comes to mind for a selection is one that's easy to remember. In this case, it's Kansas City Dream Pop meets Country Rock Quintet, Midwest Telegram, doing the song Midwest Telegram off their new EP, Midwest Telegram. Really, though, it is a great song. The EP was released just last week, and it's quickly becoming a favorite around the house here, thanks to the fact that it sounds just like the post-adolescent slice-of-life stuff, which I listened to all the time in college, but it's burnished with, like, a new freshness. It's catchy, it's jangly, it's just a little bit emo, and it's hitting all of the I-want-to-feel-young-again notes right now. You can find Midwest Telegram's self-titled EP at midwesttelegram.bandcamp.com, and they're on Facebook at Midwest Telegram as well. Here is Midwest Telegram.
Today I'm talking to the co-director of Paseo to Pembroke, uh, which is a documentary that has just been released about the history of Kansas City High School basketball. Uh, this is Tay-Tay. He is the co-director along with Carrington Harrison. Uh, and uh, the film uh, is out at uh, Screenland right now. You can catch it. There will be a bunch of other screenings. We get into all that, but uh, here is the discussion. Uh, welcome to the Pitch Podcast. Would you introduce yourself to the audience? Hello, my name is Tay. I am a co-director and producer, among other things, on feature sports doc, Paseo to Pembroke. That, uh, we have coming out here pretty soon, a basketball documentary about Kansas City and excited to talk about it. So what is it about this era of Kansas City basketball that you find so compelling? Um, uh, I've worked on uh, some documentaries and just basic storytelling things that, that you kind of got to work hard to try to find some, uh, some part of it that's kind of engaging that'll keep people uh, all the way through to the end. And uh, it, became, it was pretty obvious early on that this had this era had everything you needed. Like there's just inherent drama in basketball, like late game, buzzer beaters, state, state championships. Uh, but then, you know, uh, um, a lot of like, it's, it was just a crazy time. I mean, legitimate tragedy off the court. We have, uh, uh, I keep saying it's like multiple instances of the destruction of public property. I mean, we have just overstuffed gyms and uh uh, to somebody who's maybe more of my era, I was born in the 90s, so I wasn't really tapped in uh, that much in that time. Uh, but you look back and it's like a different, I mean, it's definitely a different time, but a different world. Like I, I can remember maybe one packed basketball game at my high school and uh, it just doesn't, you know, uh, it, it makes you, more than anything, we wanted to give people or, or have people come away with one specific question, but just better questions. Like, you know, what made that time period special? What is it about that? Was it the media environment? Was it Metro sports? Was it uh, the level of competition before high school? Was it the lack of summer leagues and AAU that made high school feel a little bit more important playing for your community and uh, your schools in front of your community? Like, what was it that made it special and why is it maybe not that case now? So uh, uh, to answer your earlier question, it just, you know, had everything, future pros, all of it, yeah. When uh, when we were gonna hop on, I was gonna I was ready to ask like, oh, were you a player in any of this or any of these your stories? And then I, I see you here, I'm like, oh, he's way too young to have been around for any of this. So <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and even Carrington, he his time period is maybe a little bit more of the early 2000s and the Heidi shootout and things like that. Like he he, looked, he has those memories and uh, fond memories of that and. Uh, it's a little bit of an education for both of us, which uh, we hope that could be for a lot of people coming up uh, after us and just, you know, who are just interested in maybe what came before. But uh, uh, I was not a, I was not a hooper. <laughs> I was not a hooper at all. Uh, my little league days were, were a nightmare. It, it's, it's very interesting to me that you guys took on the scope of documentary that you did here. It's not like one one school or or one part of town it's really the entirety of Kansas City in a pretty broad era like how how do you tackle that yeah super tough we had some early discussions about that early on and um, uh, I did wonder whether or not uh, we did have a through line to help like navigate a lot of the storylines that we kind of our landmarks we want to kind of touch uh, along the way um, but uh you know, I mean, I guess if you just, 
there are just certain, I mean, it, it honestly, it, at some point, it, the, the story just tells itself. Like, there are just some players you have to talk about. I mean, you have to talk about the Rush brothers. I mean, Anthony Peeler was the first McDonald's All-American in, in Kansas City history. I mean, you just have to talk about that. And uh, some, uh, some of the, uh, yeah, some of the points kind of just uh, have, I mean, you know, I could see some people maybe coming to the dock and thinking like, oh, we were a great team. We were, you know, undefeated. So, so we won state championship and all that kind of stuff. But there was, there's an added element to almost every one of the stories that we had that wasn't just, they were, you know, great or, 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 or this great thing happened. There was just some level of intrigue that kind of raised to the level of, uh, you know, we need to make some time for it in this dock, uh, for all the stories, uh, that we have. And, uh, it was kind of tough and we just felt like, you know, just just make the case that it's a time period and we're going to be chronologically going through it and hopefully everybody just comes along for the ride and and uh and uh yeah just educate everybody about a lot i mean you're 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 naturally interested in your own school and your own alma mater but uh uh hopefully we can kind of give you like a broader understanding of the history of a lot of these institutions when you drive past the Pembroke Hill now maybe it has a little bit more meaning major Raytown South you kind of know about some of the greats that came from there and that's kind of been the case for me I, I don't just drive past these schools anymore I kind of oh I know a little bit more now was what was that magic documentary moment uh, for you on this one? The thing where it's like either somebody says something in a story and you're like, I can't believe we got that, or somebody gave you tape on something. And you're like, there's no way we have footage of this. <laughs> uh, yeah, let me uh, let me think. Um, I, I I specific. I mean, I I can't think of a moment right now, but I know a person kind of was like a memorable there's a there's a guy by the name of Javon Jefferson who took part in what was what is understood as the greatest game in the history of Kansas City that happened in 95 and he was you know some people are just I mean not as comfortable in front of the camera and maybe are not energy givers and uh uh he is that is not the case with Javon Jefferson he is an energy <laughs> giver he's almost he could have been the engine for the whole movie if we let him like it's, he's just great um and you know he 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 you know be a pivotal part of that game was uh, because not staying at central high school and kind of migrated off to a private school and his only year of playing basketball was his senior year and he's he ends up being like a a player that goes on and does great things and and uh was uh, one of the better players on that team and uh I just at any time I'm asked that question, I just he just pops up in my head. He was just great. And uh, I hope, you know, I hope he gets to watch it and he, he, he enjoys uh, the part that he played in it for sure. But um, uh, I'd say just finding him was like a kind of like a little bit of a magical moment for me. So the film opens this week at Screenland, correct? Yes, sir. Screenland uh, off uh, Armor Road uh, in the Northland. And uh, we have the first screening at seven o'clock. Tickets are booming, and uh, we have screenings all the way through October eighth, if I'm not, uh, if, if I got that right. And we're working on screenings on the Kansas side because this is not just a Missouri side documentary. We're talking. We got Wyandotte Schlegel, a lot of Casey Kayleys, and Wyandotte. I mean, it's just okay. I'm just gonna start ranting on about a lot of other stuff. But yeah, it's just uh, uh yeah, we have screenings uh, this Thursday, September thirtieth. Uh, for people that are maybe getting to this podcast uh down the road at some point like what's what's the best is is there a website or your twitter account what's the best way to stay up and find where this eventually releases digitally other screenings etc cetera, etc cetera? yeah for sure uh we the, the i am a co-director with carrington harrison a sports radio personality at 610 sports 
and uh, his point of contact for a lot of updates on all of this. So his uh, handle is at c.harrison. And uh, the minute that we know anything, he will only share uh, on where this thing will live. Uh, we're focused on the Missouri side theatrical run at the moment and uh, going to exhaust that. And then uh, it'll, it'll, it'll live in a couple of different spots. We're having a lot of different conversations. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a niche thing. If you're into basketball, you're going to love it. But if you're not, it's just a fun. It's just fun. That's the word I use. It's just fun. And uh, hopefully uh, people just uh, have a good time and give us a chance. Well, it looks fantastic. I can't wait to see it. Thank you so much for coming on. <laughs> Appreciate you, Brock. Thank you. Absolutely. All right, have a good one. And folks, that has been the Streetwise Podcast. As always, I've been your host, Brock Wilbur. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, please check out thepitchkc.com. Please support what we're doing. Um, best of voting uh, has wrapped but the Best of Magazine will be coming out shortly. Uh, consider becoming a member of what we do over at thepitchkc.com, yada, 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 yada. Uh, all of this is to say, God, we could use a buck if you can toss it our way. We love doing what we do, and we like being here with you, um, and we would like to continue doing so. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Pitch in, and we'll make it through. Bye, 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 bye. <laughs>